After his resurrection, Jesus appears to many people. In our account, he's appeared to Mary and Mary. He's appeared to an unknown friend and Cleopas on the road to Emmaus. Jesus appeared to Peter in an untold story. And in a room full of disciples, Jesus allows them to touch him and he eats in front of them. There are many more things to do and people to see before he departs. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview and the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Agin. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, Jesus will give his family a mission. We're going to John's account in chapter 20, starting in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the marks of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was also with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed. Eight days. He had to wait eight days while all of his friends are going on and on about Jesus being alive. Thomas would feel so left out. This is so cold. But Jesus, in his own timing, does show himself alive to Thomas and provides him the same opportunity he did the others. And Thomas proclaims a faith statement, my Lord and my God. Jesus' words for Thomas speak to us. Have we physically seen Jesus? Have we physically touched him? No, we have believed without seeing. We trust because of the testimonies of those who have gone before us. Jesus is to us what Adam was to Noah. Noah was the first in his family to have never met Adam. It wasn't faith for the others to hear Adam with his own lips tell the story of Eden. Noah had to believe the whole priesthood image of God, Eden story, without seeing evidence. And like Noah, we, the church generation, have never seen Jesus, but we believe in him anyway. We are and will continue to be blessed for that faith. Now, I want to point out that I don't think Thomas is really that big of a doubter. I think he has maybe even more faith than the others because he doesn't require Jesus to eat anything to prove that he's not a ghost. He just wants to touch him. And Thomas certainly isn't a doubter later in life. If church tradition is true that he became a missionary in India and was killed for his resolve in proclaiming a risen Christ. But here... 
Thomas needed something from Jesus in order to believe, and Jesus gives it to him, even though he says there is a blessing for those who do not need such proofs. Meanwhile, Jesus has a bunch of other things to do, and it's all wrapped up in this line from John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So apparently Jesus does some miraculous things during his post-dead appearances, as if walking through walls weren't enough, right? Maybe Jesus did an encore of feeding the 5,000. Maybe he does an encore of walking on water or the crowd pleaser water into wine. We don't know, but he continues to impress them and lift their spirits. Jesus lifts their faith as they transition from mourning his death to the utmost joy that he is alive. Paul tells us that he appears to 500 people during this time. But some of the disciples go back to their business as usual, even though Jesus is alive and appearing to people. Many of these men were fishermen before Jesus called them, and while Jesus was alive pre-crucifixion, they followed him and became pupils of him. When he died, they mourned. Now that he's alive again, their spirits are uplifted. He's on and off the scene like a blinking light, and that lack of consistent hope may have been the reason that they went back to fishing, or maybe bills were due. I don't know. Maybe it was because they had no current mission. Fishing is like their default setting. When I don't have a mission, I stream television. My wife and I are suckers for a TV show marathon on a Saturday. And streaming equips you with the ability to create your own marathons if you want. Maybe for you, it's reading the paper or cross-stitching or something I've never even heard of. But for these guys, it's fishing. So they fish. John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. 
Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So Jesus finds them struggling to catch any fish and tells them to try the other side of the boat. A couple things here. He doesn't need that for breakfast. He already has fish on his fire. It's for the boys. And maybe this should have rang a bell because Luke told us that this happened at the beginning of their story too. But they don't initially automatically realize that it's Jesus. Now, just like last time, they had been out there all night, and no matter what side of the boat they throw the nets, it'd be the same sea with the same absence of fish. And it might have seemed like a silly request again, but they go for it again, and they witness a miracle again. And so Jesus proves himself as who he's always been, the Lord of all creation, And he provides for them a fishy breakfast. He shares some of his own. They bring some to the party. And every time I'm tempted to think that fish sounds terrible for breakfast, I remember how good Chick-fil-A chicken breakfast is. And then I start to understand. If it's cooked right. Anyway, this breakfast gives Peter something he needs, which is forgiveness. Peter has probably longed for this from the minute He sees Jesus in that untold story of his appearance. Peter needs forgiveness for his denials of Christ. And Jesus will now give him this. Something that he might have offered Judas if he had not taken his own life. Jesus will ask Peter three times if Peter loves him. And this moment has been preached on hundreds of times from many different angles. So I'm sure sometime in your life you've heard that It's three times to remind Peter of the three denials or to cancel them out. Or maybe you've heard that the word love in all three questions is actually different words in the original language, different layers, if you will, agape twice and phileos once. I've heard that too. So we're not going to go there. We're just going to look at this as an opportunity for repentance. Jesus loving Peter and seeing if Peter loves him back. John 21, 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because He had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Okay, so Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? More than who? More than the other disciples? Simon Peter had once boasted that he would never forsake his master. And Peter is saying, yes, he, he feels that that is still true. That his love is stronger than ever. That he has repented from the error of the denials. Jesus says, feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yes. Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Yes. Feed my sheep. So he's feeding lambs and sheep and he's tending sheep. 
This is like a redirection. Now that he's repented, Peter needs something to focus his love for Jesus on. And feeding the lambs and sheep and tending the sheep would work. And who is that? That would be anyone who hears the voice of Jesus and follows him. This mission speaks to us today. We desire meaning every single day. And what does Jesus do with us when we deny him like Peter did? Offers an opportunity for repentance and redirects us to love others again. Why do we do stupid stuff like that anyway? Aren't we new creations? Yeah, we are, but sometimes we're still dumb and pain derails us. Pain has left its mark. Pain comes in thousands of different forms and derails us from following after Jesus. Maybe it's pain from bitterness, contempt, failure, physical injury, depression, loss, strained relationships, hate, lack of forgiveness. These elements of life are unavoidable until heaven and earth are one again. And each of those things can knock me down and can knock you down. But Jesus demonstrates to Peter what Jesus will also do for us. He'll pick us up. He'll dust us off. He'll say, let's go again. He continuously gives us a mission greater than parenting or marriage or singleness, teaching, coaching, writing. Though often our opportunities may fall in those areas. Now Jesus has a word about Peter's future. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Someday, Peter's going to be led where he doesn't want to go and have his hands stretched out. And that all ties to Jesus' commands to follow him. And if you've studied any church traditions about the death of the apostles, you would find the martyrdom of Peter. And it tells of a story that matches this very well. His death does bring honor and proof of his love to Jesus. Now, if Jesus gave you a death sentence or described your end, wouldn't you want him to appraise the whole group? Nobody would want to be singled out on something so unique and so tough. And so Peter does what I think is perfectly natural. He asks Jesus, well, what about John? Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during supper and said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but that if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Now, John's writing these words, and he wants us to be perfectly clear in understanding what Jesus did say and what he didn't say. But the rumor was spreading that John was invincible. 
And according to early traditions, when Nero persecuted the church, he tried killing John multiple times but couldn't. There's another story, we don't know how accurate, that speaks of John being dipped in boiling oil but being unharmed. There's another story about him being forced to drink poison and not dying. And if any of those are even remotely true, then that would only add to the rumor. But John did, of course, die at or near triple digits while living in Ephesus. He is, according to tradition, the only apostle not to perish through martyrdom. But it sounds like he endured suffering. Now, if you recall, Jesus told the girls to tell the boys to all meet him in Galilee. And that's where this fish breakfast was, by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. So now it's time to meet up with the whole gang. Matthew 28, 16-20 Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we got 11 apostles here, likely many other disciples who have gathered with Jesus on a Galilean mountain. We've got mixed results on who's worshiping and who doubts that any of this is really happening. Jesus claims to have all authority. His authority is both in heaven and on earth. That is all of the spaces. And he says, go. The mission literally changed the look of the earth for better and for worse. Some have used this challenge to motivate worldwide missions of compassion, but in uglier times, it's been used for the Crusades and the Inquisition. The next line is what we call the Great Commission. It's the mission that Jesus gives to the church. Go make disciples. Now, Mark fronts Jesus' words with this line in Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Well, that's pretty big. So go, disciple, baptize, and teach. This is the great commission to these 500 early believers. It is the commission of the early church, and it is the commission of our local churches. It's the commission of every heart that belongs to Jesus. If you know him, then in some capacity, we are to go, disciple, baptize, and teach. Not just me, not just your pastor, not just your teachers, but everyone. And if we're not making much of the opportunities that we're given to participate in this mission, we closely resemble the man who does nothing with his mina. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want you to fake it or, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps to try to impress anyone. Jesus doesn't want that. He wants you to want this. Do you want this? Because he can take care of everything else. Now, we aren't all called to be missionaries. We can join in this mission in many ways according to our own gifts and callings. But he says go. And for some, that means to go somewhere, like your backyard, the next town over, the next state over, go to Mexico, go to Canada, go to Asia, wherever, but go somewhere. Don't stay in your house. Don't stay in your pew. Just go. But for others, 
It means as you go, wherever you are, wherever you are, do. It will do what? Jesus said, disciple. To disciple someone in Jesus' day meant that you showed them the ways of their rabbi in your life. So for us, this is Jesus. Bringing them with us and encouraging them to walk like you as you walk like your rabbi. That's not really fancy and it doesn't need any church programming. It's living and loving and inviting people to join you. He also says baptize. And this is where I picture Nacho Libre dunking his friend's face in a bowl of water without consent. But that's not the picture here. And oh boy, in the modern church age, there are so many restrictions on who can do baptizing. But Jesus said we all could. Again, this could mean symbolically dipping your friends in the lake or supporting efforts of discipleship that include faithful baptism. And he said, teach, teach the good news. Well, how do you become a good teacher? By learning the material yourself. If you aren't a gifted teacher, that's most of us. And you know what? In the way that the American church is designed, no one's going to let you teach anyway. But Jesus offers this to all of his followers to do. We all have the ability in our own personal circles to tell a good story, his story. Life and love and restoration without judgmentalism, without politics. Now, at this point, Mark gets weird. The older copies of Mark end at verse 8 and cut off 9 to 20. And I tend to believe that that means that the ending has been added. Stuff about exorcism, snake handling, baptism for salvation, stuff like that. Eh, But interestingly, we've found some copies of Mark that after verse 8, where the women don't tell anyone anything, it reads like this. But they reported briefly to Peter and to those with him all they had been told. And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. That feels like a late add-on too, but it's better Going to Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Again, Jesus points out that all scripture has been pointing to him. He suffered and died and rose again so that the forgiveness of sins could be proclaimed to all people. This is the blessing to all nations through Abraham. God has done this. Hold up, though. They need to wait for the power. That Holy Spirit that Jesus has been teasing all month is finally near. The power he sends when he goes so that they are not orphaned. And this is going to happen in the city of Jerusalem. So he will lead them all there again. But this time, he'll depart. Now, Luke wrote 
a two-part story that starts with his official authorized account of Jesus and then the only authorized account we have of the first generation church. He ends his gospel with Jesus' ascension and then he starts his second volume with the same. For him, it is the bridge event. So here's the end of Luke. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple, blessing God. Here's how he opens the book of Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So according to Luke's gospel, Jesus walked with the disciples from Galilee to Bethany, and then upon the Mount of Olives, he blessed them and departed. And their reaction was to go into Jerusalem and worship. In the second volume, he gives details that it's been 40 days since his death, which was on Passover. So now they're about 10 days away from Pentecost. The disciples were very curious if Jesus, the Lord of all creation, would now restore the kingdom to Israel. They're still looking for this physical, political victory. But Jesus reminds them that God has a plan and they need to trust even when they can't see it clearly or it doesn't fit their timing. And what they should be looking for as far as power goes is not weapons and government positions, but the Holy Spirit. Instead of kings, this world needs temples. As mobile temples, they will spread this good news all over the world. Then Jesus departs the visible realm of humanity and entered God's space. To his friends and followers, it appeared as if he flew up into the sky and disappeared in the clouds. That had to be wild. And then angels appear yet again and ask why they're just staring at the sky instead of listening to what he had said. Luke provides us with a juicy piece of information that the return of Jesus to human space will be just as he left it. We should expect him to appear in the clouds just above the Mount of Olives between Bethany and Jerusalem. A reverse ascension when he'll bring with him all of God's space and merge it with our space to make a new creation a new Eden for all. But we shouldn't just pop up a chair and sit on that mountain and wait it out. That would be a poor reaction, according to the angels. 
And it reminds me of the old Newsboys lyric, when you come back again, can you bring me something from the fridge? We also shouldn't go chasing after world power and engage in wars on culture. That would also be a poor reaction according to Jesus. We should go testify to who he is and what he accomplished without war or judgment. Before departing, Jesus drew circles around the city where he said they would spread the word to the world. Jerusalem, the city they were staying in, Judea, the region that was around Jerusalem, that Jerusalem was in, Samaria, which was the bordering country that people avoided, and then the rest of the world beyond that. And I've heard a lot of sermons drawing parallels for us, um, our city, our state or country, um, Mexico, and then the world. And it's kind of sad that Mexico is thought of like Samaria, but I understand the parallel. What we actually see play out is the Holy Spirit is going to indwell these little temple people and they would start centralized and then they would spread out over time with encouragement from both God and pain. What is missing from Jesus' last words before ascending is congregate together on Sundays and sing songs. Now, that's okay. Also missing is Build big buildings and spend a lot of money and make them look nice. Now, that is okay, too, in some cases. In fact, they can be beautiful and bring glory to God's name. There's a Catholic cathedral in Knoxville that's one of the most beautiful buildings I've ever seen. And when I drive by it, I can't help but think they believe God loves beautiful things. And he does. But the mission was more organic. He definitely didn't say go fight the culture or win wars against sinners. He said go, disciple in his love, baptize in his love, teach his love here and then there and then everywhere. This is our purpose. And God doesn't growl at us to work harder at it. He loves us and he wants to work through us to show this world that all things have been made new and complete newness is on the way. It starts with Jesus. We too are little, mobile, temple people. The kingdom of sin and pain and darkness has been overcome. It might not feel like it today, but evil has been dealt with. Jesus is the champion. And one day, the same Jesus, the only king of this world, will come to remove the evil that has long been defeated. And all the sad things will become untrue. And death will be no more. His glory will be shared by all creation at last. It's a perfect promise. He'll return in the same way he departed, on the clouds. Now, the ascension wasn't a big deal in the tradition I grew up in, but for the majority of Christianity in the world, the ascension is part of the church calendar, falling 40 days after Easter Sunday. A point is made that by Jesus ascending, it signifies that his work was complete. It is finished. It signifies that his present work in the world would be through the Holy Spirit indwelling believers as mobile temples of his grace, love, and forgiveness. His physical ascension to God's space, likely the first living earth creature to pass through the veil, signifies that God has accepted the sin and purification offerings and flesh can now enter his space again. 
And this holds tremendous promise for us, and it signifies that the groom is preparing the place he promises his bride. The new world is going to be stellar. As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our minds needs renewed. Well, Jesus told Peter to love him and to feed his sheep. Which really is just another way to say, love God and love others. It's our assignment. Go, disciple, baptize, teach. Go somewhere, or as you go here, live and love like Jesus. Follow him, invite others to join. Pass through the water together and tell a great story to the next generation. He's off the scene physically right now. And he believes in us to do the work of the kingdom until he returns. But we are not alone. He has connected us with our cleaner, with our transformer, our healer, and our protector. The Holy Spirit who lives within us every day of our lives. And opportunities abound all around us to enter into kingdom life with Jesus. He's given us talents and meanness to use. He has lost sheep and coins for us to find. We have new wineskins to fill. We have prodigals to love. We have a message of hope to share. We have a bridegroom to watch for. And on days we feel distant and cold. And on the days we feel on fire for him. We're being conformed into the image of Jesus every day. It's happening. What sort of story have we fallen into? Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone, anywhere, who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. This is the conclusion of Season 3. Next time, we will follow the little mobile temples take on the mission.